Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Clyde Barrow gripped the steering wheel and swung the stolen Chrysler onto a muddy farm road in Kaufman, Texas. The joy he got from outmaneuvering the small town cops, an angry mob of Kaufman residents on his tail, quickly faded as the tires of the car sunk deep into the Texas mud. He turned to his girlfriend, Bonnie Parker, in the passenger seat. The cops and the mob were coming. They'd have to run for it. Rain poured down as Bonnie and Clyde slogged their way through the mud. They hoped to hop into the Buick that their gangmate Ralph Foltz had stolen, but it was as stuck as Clyde's Chrysler. Together, Bonnie, Clyde, and Ralph stumbled their way through the darkness toward a farmhouse. They had no intention of hurting the farmer who came to the door, but they wanted his car. He told them he didn't own a car, but they could have two of his mules. Bonnie and Clyde Soaked and shivering, climbed onto one of the mules, and Ralph took the other. The situation would have been comical. They weren't so worried about getting caught. The mules carried them over ten miles to the town of Kemp. With the sun rising and the authorities gaining ground, their only choice was to hide. It was April 19, 1932. Bonnie Parker's introduction to robbery and car theft wasn't going well but things were about to get a whole lot worse.
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms. Coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling a six-part story about the notorious outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde. This is episode two, The Lake Dallas Gang. Clyde's time at Easton Prison Farm haunted him. He or someone he'd asked had chopped off his big toe and half of the second toe on his left foot in an attempt to get released. He still struggled to walk because of it. Memories of the routine sexual assault he'd suffered at the hands of Ed Crowder never faded. When he'd been released and reunited with Bonnie Parker, he told her he'd die before he ever went back to prison. For a time... Clyde thought the best way to avoid prison for the rest of his life was to go straight. In 1932, the United States was in the grip of the Great Depression. That year, the unemployment rate rose to nearly 24%, and the country was still about six years away from passing 1938's Fair Labors Act, which would introduce a 25 cents per hour minimum wage. Going straight wouldn't provide Clyde with an opportunity to strike it rich, and he knew he would struggle to get by with the jobs that were open to him. But anything beat going back to prison. But despite his attempts at living a crime-free life, Clyde couldn't shake the police. The pattern of his new life became clear almost immediately. He would get a low-paying job. He would show up on time and do his work. Then the Dallas police would pay him a visit and question him about some petty theft that had taken place in West Dallas. Once the police made an appearance, employers would fire Clyde. They didn't have time for a low-level employee who was removed from work to deal with the Dallas PD. Clyde would then find another low-paying job and the cycle would start all over again. Clyde's chances of going straight in Dallas seemed impossible, so he looked for work elsewhere. He traveled all the way to Massachusetts to work construction for a friend of his sister's. There, Clyde took an alias, Jack Stewart, and attempted to start a new life. 
He told Bonnie that once he was settled, she could join him. But Clyde missed Bonnie immediately, and life in Massachusetts wasn't for him. He returned to Dallas and to the woman he loved. In 1932, Clyde wasn't the only former Easton prisoner biding his time in West Dallas. Ralph Foltz had met Clyde Barrow when they were being transferred from the state prison in Huntsville to Eastham. Ralph had made a daring escape from Eastham in April of 1930, but he was eventually recaptured. He was paroled in August of 1931, and unlike Clyde, he had no intention of going straight. In January of 1932, Ralph helped his friend Raymond Hamilton break out of jail in McKinney, Texas. The two parted, and Hamilton immediately headed 35 miles south to Dallas. Ralph eventually made it to Dallas, too. He was looking for Clyde. Ralph tracked Clyde down at the Barrow service station. Clyde's big brother Buck and his wife Blanche were there. Buck had sworn off the life of crime and was doing his best to help with the family's struggling business. Ralph couldn't understand why men like Buck and Clyde would try to make an honest living. The deck was stacked against them. It was best to take while you could while you were still young enough to take it. Clyde greeted Ralph warmly. The two men talked at length about their lives since they'd both been out of prison. Ralph's stories of gambling and jailbreaks excited Clyde. Clyde had just been fired from another job, and he didn't want to start all over again. Still, he'd promised Bonnie he'd never go back to prison. Living a life like Ralph only had two real outcomes, doing time or getting killed. Finally, Ralph made his intentions clear. He wanted to stage a raid on Easton Prison Farm. He wanted to set prisoners free and take revenge on that horrible place. Clyde couldn't say no. Revenge on Easton might be the noblest job he could undertake. To make it happen, though, they would need real weapons. To get real weapons, they'd need money. Clyde would start planning, but first, he'd have to talk to Bonnie. Either she'd be a part of it, or Clyde would most likely never see her again. Bonnie Parker lied to her mother. She said she had a potential job in Houston selling cosmetics. It wasn't as glamorous as lighting up a Broadway stage or becoming a cherished poet like Bonnie had dreamed, but if she got it, she'd be able to make good money and move in a circle of higher-class people. There's no reason to think Bonnie's mother believed her. For all of her attempts, Emma Parker couldn't keep her daughter away from men who did bad things. She'd failed to stop Bonnie from marrying Roy Thornton, who was now in prison as an accused murderer. And she'd failed to get Bonnie to move on from Clyde Barrow after his time at Eastham. Bonnie was almost 22 years old now, and Emma knew she was going to do what she wanted. The potential job in Houston was a cover story, of course. Bonnie would leave her mother's house for supposed interviews down south, but would really join Clyde and his newly formed gang. At first, Bonnie had no part in the criminal activities that Clyde, Ralph Foltz, and Ray Hamilton and a handful of rotating gang members took part in. She wanted to be with Clyde, and that was that. But in March of 1932, Bonnie's time on the outside of her boyfriend's criminal escapades was quickly coming to an end. Clyde, Ralph, and Ray waited in the darkness. 
The Sims oil refinery loomed large in the moonlight. On the surface, an oil refinery didn't seem like the most practical target for three men who specialized in stealing cars. Still, Clyde believed this was the perfect place to strike. He knew a man on the inside. There was a safe on site, and it was ripe for the taking. With the money inside that safe, they could start stockpiling the weapons and supplies they'd need to make a raid on Easton. While Hollywood would one day go to great lengths to portray Clyde Barrow as an unflappable, debonair criminal, the truth resembled more of a clown show in the beginning. Clyde had already been part of a badly bungled robbery involving a safe in Denton, Texas back in 1929. The Denton affair had led to Clyde's brother Buck getting shot and ending up in prison. By March 1932, Clyde's criminal mastermind skills hadn't evolved much. Clyde, Ralph, and Ray quickly cut their way through the wire fences surrounding the oil refinery and made their way inside. Then, things fell apart quickly. Clyde assumed the refinery would be empty, but several employees were still working. Clyde and his cohorts rushed the workers and tied them up. They had to move fast now. They found the safe and got to work. They cracked the safe door open and eagerly looked inside for their spoils. There was nothing. The safe was empty. The three men ran from the refinery and made their escape. They'd gotten away without getting caught, but they had nothing to show for their robbery attempt. Tensions in the gang rose. Ray Hamilton, who at 18 was the youngest of the gang, was livid. He'd argued that going after something like an oil refinery made no sense. The smart play was a job that was low risk, low reward like stealing cars or lifting bicycles off the street. It might take more time to build up a sizable stash of money, but at least you knew what you were getting into. It was unclear at the time, but the growing tension between Clyde Barrow and Ray Hamilton would greatly shape both men's futures and eventually hasten their demise. Ray's anger didn't sway Clyde. Raiding Eastham was becoming an obsession. To make it happen, they needed real money, real weapons, and a real gang. Ralph backed Clyde up, as he would for most of their time together. It wouldn't take too long for Dallas police to come looking for Clyde when news of the failed robbery of the Sims oil refinery got around. The gang needed to move quickly, and they needed to pull a job outside of Dallas. Soon, they'd execute a crime that would garner Clyde Barrow his reputation as a big-time bank robber and start to propel he and Bonnie toward national fame. In his seminal 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck wrote, The bank is something more than men, I tell you. It's the monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. While many people living through the Great Depression couldn't express their views as eloquently as Steinbeck, they shared the sentiment. Many Americans were desperately fighting to survive and defend off abject poverty, and they had no use for banks. They kept what little money they had tucked away on their person or in some hidden spot. The banks came to represent the power of the wealthy and a government that cared nothing for its poor. Robbing a bank was seen by some as a heroic act. It was a shot fired against the money men who had laid the country so low. 
By most accounts, Clyde wasn't driven by some dream of becoming a folk hero or a Robin Hood figure. He knew the poor in the United States had to fight for themselves, but that's not what led his gang to the first national bank in Lawrence, Kansas. They wanted to carry out a raid on Easton Prison Farm, and they needed money to make it happen. The bank provided an opportunity for them to get all the money they needed in one job. They'd spent several days observing the bank. They wanted to know exactly what they were up against, and they wanted to be sure the money they needed was actually there. They couldn't afford a repeat of the oil refinery failure. It wasn't yet 9 a.m. when the bank president made his way toward the front door of the First National. The three robbers sat in a car out front and looked at each other. This was it. Ray kept the car running. Clyde and Ralph leapt out and raised their shotguns. The bank president followed their orders. He let them inside and took Clyde to the vault while Ralph made sure no one else entered. Things moved quickly, and soon Ralph was heading back to the car, guns still raised, while Clyde followed behind carrying two bags of money. The haul from the first national robbery netted the group $33,000, the equivalent of over half a million dollars today. The trip to Kansas was a stunning success. Clyde believed he and the gang were past their early mistakes and could start to set their plan in motion to raid Eastham. They acquired weapons and expanded their group. When Clyde ran with Buck, they'd called themselves the Barrow Brothers. With Buck gone, the gang needed a name. So the Lake Dallas gang was born, and they believed they would soon have enough firepower to make some real noise. Plans to raid Easton were falling into place, but they would need some help on the inside to pull it off. Clyde knew who he wanted. Aubrey Scally had taken the blame when Clyde murdered Ed Crowder in Easton. Scally was serving a life sentence, and Clyde wanted to make sure he got Scally out. He also knew Scally could help with the operation if he knew the plan. But there was a major problem. There was no way anyone in the gang would set foot in Easton before the raid. Clyde had an idea that would get them in touch with Scally without having to risk getting caught. On April 17th, 1932, Bonnie Parker calmly spoke to the guards at Easton Prison Farm. It reminded her of the time she'd smuggled a revolver to Clyde at the McLennan County Jail in Waco. She told them she was Aubrey Scally's cousin. She was allowed to meet with Scally privately and lay out the plan to break him and others free. Scally liked Bonnie, and he liked the plan. He told her to let Clyde know he was ready and willing to help. Without her actions at Eastham, the duo of Bonnie and Clyde might never have gained fame. Bonnie had helped Clyde break out of jail in Waco, but this was different. Bonnie had carried out a mission for the gang, and she was part of it now. She told her mother the job in Houston had finally gone through and that she'd be leaving her family's home in Dallas to pursue her dream of selling makeup. In reality, she headed to Tyler, Texas with Clyde and Ralph. Their preparations for the Eastham raid were almost complete. But first, they needed to steal some really fast getaway cars. Tyler, Texas sits just over 90 miles southeast of Dallas. On the drive to Tyler, the relatively open plains of North Texas 
give way to the green woods of East Texas, and it can feel like you're entering a different world. East Texas is dotted with small towns and mid-sized cities that welcome travelers as they make their way from the Lone Star State to Louisiana. The small city of Tyler was perfect for the job at hand. In the early 1930s, its population was a little over 17,000. It was large enough to have the types of cars Clyde and Ralph were looking for, but small enough for the robbers to escape from the modest police force. As the gang rolled into town, they felt good about their plan. They'd executed the Kansas bank robbery flawlessly, and they'd gotten Bonnie into Eastham without any complications. Clyde believed the mistakes he'd made in the past were behind him. Nothing happened in Tyler to make him feel differently. Clyde quickly stole a Chrysler, and Ralph nabbed a Buick. Clyde raced out of town with Bonnie in the passenger seat, and Ralph floored his new vehicle just to see how fast it would go. They were in high spirits as they rolled into the small town of Kaufman, Texas. Ralph knew of a hardware store they could knock off with no problem. It had a good supply of high-powered guns that would help them on the Eastham raid. Bonnie looked on from the car as Clyde and Ralph went to break the lock on the door of the hardware store. Clyde and Ralph, still a little giddy from driving their new cars, didn't see the Kaufman night watchman coming their way. By the time they did, the man had his gun raised and was ready to shoot. Clyde raised his own weapon and fired. He didn't want to kill the man, but he needed to buy some time. Clyde's shot went well high of its target, but it gave he and Ralph the chance to race back to their cars and peel out of Kaufman as fast as they could. Soon, the police and an angry mob of Kaufman residents were on their trail. Eventually, they found themselves atop the two mules bouncing their way to the outskirts of Kemp, Texas. They hid for as long as they could, but the marshal, the mob, and the police caught up with them. Shots flew past them and they tried to find cover in a creek bed. One hit Ralph in the arm. He stumbled and cried out in pain. Clyde started to panic. If they caught him, he would go back to prison, and there was no way he was gonna let that happen. He asked Bonnie what he should do. If she ran with him, they'd both get caught. Ralph was too injured to keep going, so Bonnie told Clyde to run. Clyde took off and left Bonnie and Ralph behind. That night, April 19, 1932, ended with Bonnie Parker in a small jail cell in Kemp, Texas. While Ralph's wound was tended to, Bonnie felt utterly alone. Fairy tales weren't supposed to end like this. In a fairy tale, a knight in shining armor would burst through the jail walls and carry her off to freedom. But this was real life, and that wasn't going to happen. Clyde had a plan to break Bonnie out. Whether he could pull it off or not remained to be seen. Bonnie had been moved to the Kaufman County Jail. While it wasn't an impenetrable fortress by any means, it offered far more obstacles than the tiny jail in Kemp. Ralph was going to be moved to a jail in Wichita Falls, so there was no way Clyde could get them both out at the same time. On top of that, news from East Texas reached Dallas fast. 
Clyde and other members of the Lake Dallas gang were now on the run. The gang was falling apart right before Clyde's eyes. Some who signed up to raid Eastham had no desire to pull a job rescuing Clyde's girlfriend from jail. Others just weren't used to this level of heat from the police. Clyde abandoned the Eastham plan. All that mattered now was breaking Bonnie and Ralph out of jail. Clyde needed money to spring Ralph. He hoped maybe Bonnie would be released since she was a first-time offender, but if it didn't happen, he'd need money to get her out too. He set his sights on a jewelry store in Hillsboro, Texas. Clyde had met the owner and his wife once through their son, and he knew there was a safe inside. Clyde traveled to Hillsboro with two members of the Lake Dallas gang who'd stuck with him, Johnny Russell and Ted Rogers. The plan was for Clyde to wait in the car while Russell and Rogers knocked on the door of the owner's house and got him to let them into the jewelry store. Once inside, they'd make the old man open the massive safe, which they decided would be too difficult to do on their own. The plan unfolded just as they'd hoped. Clyde waited in the car. Russell and Rogers got the old man out of his house and led him to the jewelry store. Then something went wrong. Gunshots rang out in the night, and Russell and Rogers rushed out of the store to the car. Before he could even figure out what was happening, Clyde slammed the gas and took off out of Hillsboro. The three men split their take, which was far less than anticipated, and then they went their separate ways. The Lake Dallas gang ended the same way it started, with a botched robbery. Only this time, instead of just finding an empty safe at an oil refinery, they'd killed an old man at a jewelry store. When the police came to talk to the owner's wife, she identified a picture of Clyde Barrow as one of the men who'd done it. Clyde was now wanted for murder, and the state was offering $250 for his capture. That price is over $4,000 in today's money, and it quickly made Clyde Barrow a household name. And Bonnie still sat in a jail cell in Kaufman, Texas, it's believed that Bonnie wrote most of her surviving poetry while she was sitting in that cell waiting to be released, or for Clyde to rescue her. But her poem, The Trail's End, might have been written later while she was on the run. In it, Bonnie wrote, They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they're heartless and mean. But I say this with pride, that I knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. Even though Clyde had been sitting in the car when the murder in Hillsboro had happened, he would never be viewed as upright and clean in the public eye again. Soon, Bonnie Parker would be back at his side, and her legend as a cold-blooded killer would be born. Next time on Infamous America, no matter how hard she tries, Bonnie Parker can't leave Clyde Barrow behind. Soon they find themselves on the run and trading fire with police across the country. The violence builds until Bonnie almost loses a leg and Clyde almost loses an idol. That's next time on Infamous America.
This season was co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Research and writing by Michael Federico. The theme song for this season is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. The lyrics were adapted from the poem The Trail's End by Bonnie Parker, and the music was written and produced by Brian Ray. The song was performed by Brian Ray, Orianthi Penagaris, and Stephen Pack. It was recorded at Bad Manor Studio by Jose Alcantar. Additional original music by Rob Valier. Audio editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube. Just search for Infamous America Podcast. Thanks for listening.